Well, okay. Speaking of babies, let's talk a little bit about babies. By the way, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be between verses 21 and 29, so we'll finish the chapter this morning. I entitled the Bible study, Reconciliation Response. Now, let's just have a moment of truth here about babies, because many of us have raised them. Uh, some of us are in the other room doing them, and, uh, and here's what we know about babies. No disrespect to Frederick, because he is an exemplary baby. He didn't cry during that, and I count that as big time. But babies, by nature, are selfish little people. Here's what I mean. If you're around a baby for very long, you realize that in their mind, it's all about them. With every sound, with every gesture, they're crying out, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm messy. I want that. I don't want that. I want what you're having. Their favorite response to every request you ask of them is no. And, and this predisposition is one in which every one of us was born into the world with. This is, this is where the default switch is set. It's all about me. And how we develop from that stage into, of supreme selfishness into a responsible adult has a lot to do with the response to that aspect of our nature by loving parents. You see, children whose parents chastise them, berate them, belittle them for simply being a kid and fail to show them the kind of unconditional love that defines being a parent, those children are likely to grow into adults who find it difficult to show love and to receive love from other people. And on the other hand, kids who are eased out of their own self-centeredness by the unconditional love that's rendered by their parents have a better chance of maturing into adults who show love and receive it easily from other people. Being a loving person is actually a natural response to having been loved. And reconciliation works much the same way. In fact, the reconciliation which Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for us was the most supreme act of love that ever has been shown. And it was shown to us at a time when we were at our most deplorable, selfish, self-centered state. In short, we were enemies of God. The Bible tells us we were at enmity with God. And Paul's mission in this passage we're going to look at today is to demonstrate both to the Colossians and to us that although we were once in this state of self-centeredness, Christ died for us. And through his death, he completely and single-handedly released us from the bondage that is the condemnation of sin. Using his own example, Paul, Paul goes on to show them that because we as Christians have been beneficiaries of this reconciliation, we now have been given a ministry of reconciliation, whereby we share the truth of Jesus Christ with the world, even if it means we have to suffer for the pleasure of doing it. And so in this morning's passage between verses 21 and 29 of Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the life of the believer before we are reconciled to Christ. And then secondly, we're going to look at the benefits to us of that reconciliation which Jesus has won for us. And then finally, we're going to, 
we're going to examine what the, the, the natural love response should be from us by virtue of having been rescued from the bondage of sin. So if you would, please stand with me right now. We're going to just read, um, actually, I, I pr- had it published in the Stuff to Know. We're between verses 21 and 29. But right now, I want to just read verses 19 through 23 because verses 19 and 20 really kind of introduce what we're going to be looking at. So picking up in verse 19, and we'll read over to verse 23. We read, For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. What we sang today, it's the blood that you applied in payment in full for our sin that has given you now a way to reconcile sinners like us back to you. What an unspeakable gift is that. And so this morning, Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the goodness, the glory, the mercy, the grace, and the love that that singular act means to us, Father. Open our hearts to receive the truth of this word through the power of your spirit as your servant this morning to share these words with your precious people. I pray that nothing would emanate from my heart or my lips, but only that which you would wish them to hear this morning. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's start with life before reconciliation, okay? And verse 21 says it pretty clear. We were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. You know, if you look back to the garden state, and this is why, again, I, 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 I urge you, study the whole Bible. It is not a bunch of dislocated discrete writings of different authors. This is one work, one overarching theme, the redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, that message is called the crimson thread that runs all the way through scripture. And if you go back to the garden state, we had perfect union with Father God. Perfect union. We had fellowship with him. We could approach him anytime just like we approach our own fathers, just like Frederick one, one day will approach Martin. No fear, nothing between him and his father. And this was the way it was. But, but the, the time, the point came when human beings made a decision to override the command of God on their lives. And by the way, there weren't many commands. There was really only one that we were, we were told of, And that was that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they chose to do that, they they committed an act of rebellion. The decision to override the command of God was an act of rebellion. And when we rebel against an authority, what we do is we declare war against that authority. 
Adam and Eve declared war against God and they became enemies of God. And the motivations that drove them are the same motivations that drag us into sin. And, and John the Apostle identifies it perfectly in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, when he talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. They saw this fruit on this tree, and it was beautiful to behold. And, and it was something that, would, that they were told would make them wise, that they too could be like God. And this appealed to their flesh. And this is why Paul writes in Romans 8, 7, he tells us that the carnal mind, that is the mind that is, that is motivated and driven by the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That carnal mind is enmity against God, which is to say we are enemies of God when we are in that mindset. For, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. This was established in the garden. There was one simple law that Adam and Eve were given. And yet their, their carnal mind took them out of being subject to the law of God and into sin. And, and this is why, again, as we get this grand description of Jesus' sacrifice in that seminal chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53, which is labeled by Bible scholars and students as the, the suffering servant chapter. Isaiah has a description for you and me. Sounds very much like that selfish baby syndrome when he says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone turned, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're left without excuse, right? We know that there is a God in heaven. Romans chapter 1 describes very clearly that the invisible attributes of God are, are clearly seen, plainly seen in the things that are made. And so we are without excuse. And yet, we rebel. Now, when you lay all that out, this is the holy God who, is, who, is, who has done everything for us. He's created us. He, he, he could have not created us. He could have created other beings. He could have done an infinite number of things. And so here we are as human beings, and the gratitude that we show for our existence is to disobey, rebel against, and declare war against God. And we could imagine if we were God for a day, some of us sometimes have to remind ourselves that we're not God every day or any day. But we would expect... If we, if we think about it in terms of the way we would react, humanity would have been over before they ever left the garden if we were God, if we were king. But that didn't happen. What, it, what happened instead is what we read in the second portion of verse 21 and verse 22. He says, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, to reconcile something means to, to bring it back in line with a standard. All those army movies we used to watch as kids. All right, we're going to be on this mission. Let's synchronize our watches. What they're doing is they're making sure everybody's watch matches... One watch. Musical instruments. Okay, we're playing instruments up here. Do you realize that there is an international standard, a frequency to which all instruments are tuned? It's 440 hertz. That is to say, 440 vibrations per second, which is 
the A above middle C on the piano, it sounds something like this, only better. Um, and that frequency is the reference frequency so that every instrument in the orchestra is pretty much able to harmonize together and play together because they have a standard to which they're reconciled. And Jesus, his act of love on the cross reconciles us sinners back to a standard. It's the standard of Jesus's sinless life. Here's the problem in the church today, and this is a big problem. When we read about the coming apostasy, and I have to put my finger on one reason and one reason and only for the apostasy of the church. This is it, in my view. It's that people have forgotten that sinners need to be reconciled back to Jesus, to the standard of his righteousness. What are we doing instead? The greater church has many quarters of it in which we are reconciling people back to people. We are reconciling people back to a standard that has been communally agreed upon by a particular church, denomination, or faction. And this is grievous. We have no authority to reconcile people back to any one of us or any human being, save for Jesus Christ, whoever has lived, would be to leave them in condemnation. And yet in today's church, this, this movement of inclusion in diversity has gone off the rails. By all means, Jesus accepts everybody. I don't care what it is you have done, what you have gone through, what you think you could never be forgiven of. Jesus Christ wants you with him. However, he will, not, he will not change the standard for your sake. The standard will always be his righteousness. You'd say, well, no one can attain that. Exactly. Now you're starting to understand the atonement. You're starting to understand the sacrifice. But when we as the church say, well, we've gotten together, we've gotten together in our Congress, we got together in our Presbyterian, we've gotten together in whatever congregation that we want to say uh, has the authority, and we have decided that we are now going to allow people who live in this lifestyle, which the Bible clearly describes as sinful, we have no authority to do it, and we are leaving people in a place of ultimate peril they will not be in a in a heart of repentance and contrition such that they could receive the lord and trade their ashes for his beauty and be saved and this is one of the greatest disservices the greater church has ever done to people is to get into the mindset that somehow we can reconcile people back to the church well we we're a church of diversity inclusion we'll take everybody in just as they are and leave them just as they are aren't we great aren't we loving aren't we wonderful no you are killers with a smile because you are leaving people in a place whereby they do not reconcile back to the right standard and this is what we're told in the text. God initiates this reconciliation. We don't. We could never. 
Were we to initiate reconciliation, we'd mess it up, which is what we're doing right now. He initiated the process through the death of his son, Jesus. He bore the punishment meant for us to pave the way for their reconciliation. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Romans 5, 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8 of the same chapter, he says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is right there in the second portion of that verse. That is the guarantee that anyone can come. I don't care what lifestyle you've lived in, what lifestyle you're living in now. If you have the desire to come to Christ and die to yourself and lay it down before the cross and say, God, I don't have power over that, but I believe that you do. And because I believe that you do, I'm here. Save me. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied to my life. Now, there are amazing benefits described in this reconciliation. And we see them there in verse, the second portion of uh, verse 22 and the beginning of 23. He says there, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Let's look at those three things that he, he identifies there. Because this is, this is the payoff. This is the value proposition of giving our lives to Jesus Christ. First of all, to present you holy, as he says there, is to say that God sacrificed his son so that we could have holiness. Now, you think about it. The Lord has said it multiple times in Scripture, speaking to all of us, he says, be holy, for I am holy. What does that mean? Why, that means to be set apart. When we refer to the holiness of God, what we are acknowledging is that there is none like him. He's the only one of those. And he is completely unaffected by the things that beset us, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of those things that, that lead us on the superhighway of sin. These are not things that are, that are uh, characteristic of God. So when he tells us that he has made us holy, what he is telling us is that through the power of the blood of Jesus, he has set us apart. We are not and should not be like the world. We are not of the world. We are of now God. We are of the Lord. And the spirit of God dwells in us. And that has, that has made us, that has imputed to us the holiness of God. This is a monumental development in our lives. That all of a sudden now, the things that beset human beings. And remember, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, the entire creation was corrupted. And in that cre corruption, not only did it affect the darkness of our hearts, but it also affected the integrity of our bodies. We die. We age. We, we are subject to illness. We are subject to injury. And then we die because of that sin effect. So you say, well, we still die. Well, our bodies die, but because we are now holy, what we have is eternal life. And we have the promise of a renewed, a, a regenerated body that will never die. And so in a real sense, well, not in a real, in a totally true sense, we are, we are without the fear of death because God has made us holy. 
Now he says also that we are without blame. Verse 22. That we are holy and blameless. We are without blame. Now the, the words that are used there to describe that, that benefit to us are much the same as the description of what the priests look for when they take a lamb to consider it for sacrifice. Or for example, the red heifer. The red heifer that will be necessary, its ashes to purify the temple when the new temple is built. You realize that, that rabbis have to comb every inch of that red heifer. And if there are more than three hairs that are not red, that are either black, brown, or white, that is, that is discarded as an acceptable sacrifice. Similarly, when the lambs were brought for, for sacrifice, they were examined by the rabbinical crew to make sure that those lambs were suitable for sacrifice. When, it's, when we are told that, that, uh, that we are without blame, what we are being told is that we had, we offered, or what was offered on our behalf was a perfect sacrifice. That sacrifice was without fault, without blemish. And again, the purity of that sacrifice is imputed to us such that we are without blame. This is the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, all the blame, all of the truckloads, the train loads, the cargo ship loads of blame were put upon Jesus Christ and all of the purity and the righteousness of Christ was put upon you. It is a massive undertaking. It was accomplished in, in, in really a few hours on the cross. But the import of it is gigantic. It's enormous. Think of all the people through all the ages and the ages to come who have received the blood of Jesus Christ as the atonement for their sins and now have that beautiful imputation of righteousness on them. They're blameless. And then it says that we're above reproach. What does reproach mean? Well, reproach means that you, can, you are subject to accusation or condemnation. And we know from Scripture that Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren. This is found in Revelation 12. He's described as the, the accuser of the brethren. Satan still has the ability to speak directly to God and to accuse you. Look what he did. Look what she said. Look what they harbor in their heart. These people aren't saved. These people are as evil as they ever were. Maybe more so now because they're hypocrites. And yet what the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And see, when you come to Jesus Christ, there is no accusation that can hold up against you. There is no one who has standing to accuse you of sin anymore. Now, we see verse 23, and this is a verse that some people use as a proof text to the position that a believer can lose their salvation it says there in verse 23 after telling us of these wonderful benefits that we get for our redemption our reconciliation we're told that 
were presented holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight. But then we get an if statement in verse 23, where it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel for which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, this is not an if-then statement in the classic logical sense. In an if-then statement, you state a condition, and if that condition is true, then the conclusion must be true. This is not such an if-then statement. This is a statement that introduces a fact. If you state this another way, it says that we're not, we're not saved by continuing in faith. We continue in faith because we're saved. And many of the verses that people point to that they want to use as an argument for the fact that believers can lose their salvation, just fly in the face of the great weight of Scripture. The great, and men, we're studying this right now on Tuesday nights in Hebrews, aren't we? We've already seen some pivotal chapters that, uh, that raise this question. But the truth of the matter is that the promises that we are given in Scripture relate very specifically, very, very explicitly to eternal life. That if, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, that Jesus has raised from the dead. You will be saved. You are saved. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God, lest any should boast. We do not earn our salvation. There is nothing about us that makes us worthy for salvation from the beginning. Every single day that we live and walk in our Christian life, somewhere in the residues of our minds and our hearts, I'm sure there are sins, sometimes even in our actions. This does not mean that we lose our salvation. The, The only question that's meaningful when we deal with a professed believer who now is saying that they no longer believe is whether or not they receive the truth at all. The Lord warns, Matthew chapter 7 is the best example. He warns that there will be people in the day of judgment who are shocked that they they are not actually considered among the truly saved people. And they they list their resume, their Christian resume. Hey, I was a churchgoer. I, I did this. I visited the sick. But the Lord's standard is do you believe in your heart? Is what you hold in your heart consistent with what you say in your mouth? And of course, the Bible states a principle that we all do well to remember is that you'll know them by their fruits. And this is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? See, I don't know about you, but in my most miserable days as a Christian, I'm very sure of my salvation because I have a keen understanding that my salvation never depended on me. My salvation was never built on the foundation of my works. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. My salvation was built solely on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's what he did, not what I did. So how could something I do abrogate with something that he did? How could, how could eternal life become conditional life? The scripture doesn't say that it's conditional. It says that it's eternal. 
And so please don't get sideways with that particular verse because it's not, it, it's stating a fact. It's saying, look, because we, we, we are saved, we continue in the faith. The true believer continues in the faith even with setbacks because the battle, be- another song we sang today, the battle belongs, right, to Christ. Now, the response of one that is truly saved is outlined for us in verses 24 through 29. And there are, there are three responses to the reconciliation that God has won for us. Let's just look uh, right now at verse 24. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. The first response that should come from a reconciled soul is something we give back to God, and that is our lives. And the clear indication that one has given their life back to Christ is the measure by which they are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. This is something that, that for those of you that stay after the service, and please, after communion, keep your seats. We're going to show you a brief film, and then we're going to have, uh, commun- or we're going to have prayer time in here. But just understand that when we are surrendered to Christ and to the cause of Christ, we will, Jesus says, you will face persecution. All those that choose to live for Christ will, in some fashion, to some measure, experience persecution. To the extent that we are willing to endure that for the cause of Christ, we give back. We give back something to the Lord for our salvation. Now, Paul is not saying that his suffering was in somehow a contribution towards the payment for his redemption. And this is an error that most other religions fall into. Even our Catholic brothers and sisters, they subscribe to a a doctrine called purgatory. Growing up Catholic myself, I was an Italian Catholic, we were taught this, this doctrine of purgatory. And what purgatory basically lays out is that for souls that are not sufficiently redeemed and purified in this life, they will be sent to an intermediary place. And in that place, through their own prayers, but for the prayers of those who are praying for them, they can then be moved out of purgatory and into a full-blown heavenly realm. This is heresy of the first order this is why i i i i'm troubled by family and friends that are in the catholic faith some of whom perhaps don't understand that doctrine but what that doctrine screams out is a very low view of jesus and his atonement because what we are saying is jesus you died on the cross thank you very much but i need to get to work in order to avoid purgatory so i can go straight to heaven but heaven forbid if i don't make it why family and friends please light a candle for me pray me out of it get me to heaven on time <laughs> it can't be done we are saved by grace through faith not of works it is a gift of god lest any should boast And back in the dark ages, there was plenty of boasting by the clergy, so much so that people literally paid indulgences to clergy to free their family members. 
from purgatory. This was one of the things that rankled Martin Luther. And, of course, we know what happened after that, the Reformation. What we, what we do when we suffer for Christ is we suffer not to be saved, but because we are. Okay? Now, the second thing is a ministry to the church. Let's look at verses 25 through 29. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Now let me stop there. This second response to... um, to our reconciliation is, is a ministry to the church. It's serving the church, service to the saints, according to the dispensation of God. Now, when he talks about a mystery that heretofore was not known, but now is known and, is, and, and was commissioned, by, commissioned for Paul to bring to the world, that mystery was that in the church age, both Jews and Gentiles would come together in one organism known as the body of Christ. And, and again, prior to this time, thousands of years before this time, that was an inconceivable idea. From the Jewish perspective, it would be, we don't want those Gentile dogs and pigs to be anything part of our approach to God. And the Gentiles had a similar kind of pejorative view of the other side. And so they would never consider coming together in, in unity to worship God. And, and the church becomes that, this unified body. And what Paul is saying is the truly redeemed life wants to serve the saints, wants to bless the saints, wants to be part of what the body of Christ is doing. This is what we learned in Philippians when we were studying there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we are told, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a worship leader. You don't have to be anything official. As a believer and a a member of the body of Christ, you have a ministry. There are things that God has gifted you to do. Some of you are very handy with your hands. And when we need things that are needing to be done physically to the church, you step up and you do those things. You're using your gifts to glorify and magnify Christ. And and there's a myriad of other gifts that others of you uh, also bring to the fore for the sake of the Lord. Now, these last two verses give the third response, and this is to the world at large. So we've seen a gift that we, or a, a response that we give to the Lord, our willingness to die to self and suffer for the cause, a gift that we give to the church. Hey, we're willing to serve in the body of Christ. And now a third one to the world at large, verses 28 and 9. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. What Paul is describing there is pretty much taking on board the Great Commission to go out into the world, to warn of the peril that sin occasions, to bring the words of truth into the lives of people. In short, to live in and exercise 
what the Lord calls the ministry of reconciliation. If you would, this is where we're going to close. If you just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, between verses 18 and 20, Paul here much more thoroughly describes this ministry of reconciliation. He says, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, notice to himself, not to the church, not to a group of people who are all in agreement. No, he reconciles us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you see how that flows there? Jesus Christ began the reconciliation process by calling us to himself through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Now that we are part of that family of faith, we have a mission. We are, we are ambassadors for our king. What does an ambassador do? He doesn't do anything in his own name and in his own right. He brings the message of the king to those that need to hear it. We are reconciled. We bring the message of reconciliation to others. You'll say, wait, I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm not a Bible scholar. I can't really, I don't talk good, blah, blah, blah. Here's what you do. You are the world's expert on what God did in your life. No one else can speak to that better than you. And all the Lord is saying is, hey, I've been redeemed. Let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you how it happened. I let go and let God. I gave my life over to Jesus and he saved me. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Look around you when you leave here today. Go to a restaurant, have lunch. Look around. Look at the person serving you. Ask yourself, is this person going to hell or is this person going to heaven? Is there anything I can do about that? I mean, that's the way we need to think. I know sometimes it could be monumentally uncomfortable. But uh, what's the worst that can happen to you? They say no. They say leave me alone. And if you suffer, give glory to the Lord for suffering for the cause of Christ. Paul, Paul and, or, uh, Peter and John did in Acts chapter 5 when they were beaten for simply preaching the word of God on the streets of Jerusalem. And they went away rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. So... Don't leave here today without knowing that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a redeemed person. God has reconciled you back to his perfect righteous standard. And you, you meet that reconciliation because now you, you possess the righteousness of Christ given to you by him freely. Hold that close to you. Serve the Lord, serve the church, serve the world by bringing the, the word of truth to it.